wanted to begin by reading a letter to you that, whoop, there goes my water. I wanted to begin by reading a letter to you that was written by our guest last week, Calvin, um, after they had gone home and discussed the conversation that we had had. They went home and had a conversation. Um, their whole group had a conversation. And the letter's long, but, and I can make that available to any of you, but essentially, I'm going to just read the last paragraph. It says, our group that attended expressed their sincerest thanks, and they appreciate the love that you showed. And this is a letter to you, by the way. Many of them expressed how surprised they were by your hospitality, considering their past experiences with other Christians. Thank you for helping to change the past experience and stereotypes that they have had. One person said, wow, I never experienced such love from Christians. Someone else even said, if I had experienced this type of love within the church, I would have never left. I think that last comment is priceless. So that's the conversation. They went home. You undoubtedly went home and had a conversation about it. They went home and had a conversation about it. And they went, wow. I mean, they were actually, when we were talking about this discussion last week on the phone, they said, are there going to be people there protesting? I mean, these are people that have not been in the church in 15, 20 years and did not understand um, that we like to talk about God's love and all that stuff. So thank you so much for being so hospitable. Um, the video of that will be online. Um, actually, uh, this e- by this evening, it'll be online. It'll be on YouTube if you wanted to show anybody uh, that. So I just wanted to say thank you. This church, I'm so proud of the way that all of you uh, treated our guests who do not necessarily believe or live lifestyles that we believe in. So thank you for um, loving them. This sermon today has nothing to do with Mother's Day. Sorry. However, I'd like to dedicate it to my mother, and there's a reason why. She had a rule. During the summer, I had to read for one hour to get a half hour of TV. It was evil, it was wicked, it was the worst rule around. However, I grew to love reading. I grew to have thirst for knowledge. When I got into books, there was a whole different world that was available to me in these books. And, and I remember maybe there were some summers that I got into some books and just went, I don't even want to watch TV. Maybe that's not true. But, I, you know, I, maybe, I don't even want to watch TV. And and, and so she had this rule, and, and I spent so many times, um, uh, so much time in the summer simply reading that I just would like to thank my mom for that because not only did that make good, some, some good study patterns, but it also started to make me ask some really big questions in life. Like, why, do we, why are we even here? Why can we even ask the question that we're here? Why do we even think about these things? And so it got me to ask questions about good and evil and and um, all kinds of other questions. So, Mom, even though I hated your rule and I thought it was evil, wicked, stupid, I thought it was the worst thing in the world, I thought you were the worst mother in the world, happy Mother's Day. Thank you for forcing me to do it. It was very important that you did that, and I really, honestly, now can stand up here as a 31-year-old person saying, I really did appreciate that. Um, So thank you, Mom, and thank you for forming me into the man I am today. So first, I want to say, though, as we get into this topic, we're on the second part of our series called Awkward Conversations, and we're just talking about parts of life that are awkward, and, and this week we're talking about atheism and science and, and, and things of that nature. And I do want to say that, that this, by its very nature, is a complex issue. So 
maybe take out your, your thinking caps that your first grade teacher um, had you wear and you dust those off, pot those on your head, because today is a little bit deeper into uh, this conversation. And, it, it, and what, really what I'm doing is helping us to understand the two different worldviews and how do we talk to people with these different worldviews and, and how do we engage them. We all have friends that are atheists and people will say, oh, well, hasn't science kind of progressed further than God? And so we, we kind of have these issues. So this conversation, by its very nature, has a little bit less Bible than normal. I actually prefer to give a sermon where we just dig into the Bible and we spend the entire time on that. But this, because when you approach an atheist, you don't necessarily use the Bible because they don't care. Um, we have to go into some other arguments and discussions. So we are going to get into some Bible, and there's probably a lot more that we could have done, but there's so much here. So let's get right into it today. There's two different ways. Actually, there's four main ways to look at the world, four worldviews, but there's two different worldviews at play here. What is a worldview? A worldview is the way that you explain the world, a way that you explain everything. And so um, there's theism and there's naturalism. Theism is the, is the worldview that God created the world. Naturalism is that all there is in the world are natural laws. So it's just in nature. That's it. This is everything. There's no super nature. Like Jesus is supernatural. There's none of that. It's just what is natural. So naturalists only believe in the laws of nature. There's no supernature. There's no supernatural. And therefore, they're atheists. The rubric for truth in naturalism is science. What can be proven scientifically is true. So um, we got a chart that we're going to show you. And I, you know, I kind of laughed when I saw, um, these are your notes. These are your sermon notes today. It's one full page, front and back. And I probably could have given you more. But I wanted to make sure that you got all this stuff and didn't have to write it down because there's a lot here. So let's just go over this chart a little bit just to help you understand. It's a chart I made this week. Truth in naturalism is the sciences, philosophy, and history. That's, that's how you decide what truth is. What do we say truth is? Truth is personal. Truth is, is found in the person of Jesus. Truth is found in the Bible. We use science to confirm truth, but truth is not necessarily science, even though science is great. So how do we explain how we got here? In naturalism, is evolution. That's how we got here. We evolved into being the people who we are today. In theism, we say it's creation. We were created by God, by a loving God, who put his image within us. In naturalism, life is unguided and ruled by chance and necessity. It just so happened to be that you evolved into the person that, that can think. You evolved into the type of person who, who could talk who could communicate with other people. It just so happens. There's no purpose. Whereas in theism or, or creationism, there is an intelligence in the universe and it is embedded within us. God embedded his intelligence within us. Naturalism. Science has, this is one of the arguments, science has disproven God over the years. This is one of the arguments of science. And you hear it all the time. And, and part of the problem with this debate is the church, we're seen as pretty hostile towards anything science, right? We're kind of seen that way. But the fact of the matter is, we're not. We need to learn to speak the language a little bit better because this is the language our culture is speaking now. So over here, God is the whole show, including the laws of nature. So God is the God of the whole show. 
and we're going to go over that argument too. The very last one's a little, a little bit more complex, but we'll break down real easy. The, the argument of naturalism is saying a design does not necessitate a designer. If we had any engineers in here today, or actually Richard's here today, you would say, no, every design has a designer behind it. That's one of the arguments of this worldview. Whereas our worldview says, no, if you have a design, that means somebody designed it. You need both the design and the designer. And we're going to talk about that today a little bit, too. So the rise of science has fueled the rise of naturalists. These people live in a Judeo-Christian world, and they had to explain the world around them apart from Christian ethics, apart from what the Bible has to say. And that's why the rise of this area on your chart is so big today, because they've had to say, well, we need to explain everything that is happening around us. So, um, on the next slide, we talked a little bit about this. I want to say some things about this particular sermon. Um, this is how we talk to a science-minded or an atheistic person. Um, I'm not going to use the Bible as much as I like, because atheists do not presuppose the authority of the Bible. So you talk to an atheist, and you're like, well, you know, John... Uh, chapter 1 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They would say, I don't care. That's not true. Right? You ever had to have that conversation with an atheist? They're like, that doesn't matter. But science is disproving that fault. So, they, so you keep going here. Um, science is the language of truth for an atheist. So we have to learn that language. I know that sounds difficult. But if you watch enough Bill Nye the Science Guy, as much as I did. I'm kidding. Um, I just said I wasn't allowed to watch much TV, but I actually was. I did, I did watch some TV. Um, so we need to learn to speak that language. If we're going to speak to atheists at work, at home, and, and wherever, we need to learn to speak that language. Um, and then also, personally, I would only really reference the Bible after having built rapport with an atheist or to confirm what it is they're saying. So they're saying something, I would say, oh, yeah, you know, that actually sounds a lot like Jesus. Or that sounds a lot like um, the creation story, what you're explaining. Oh, there's a big bang? Yeah, that's actually pretty consistent with Genesis chapter 1. Let there be light. There was a great explosion of light, and then light. It makes sense to me. Let's keep going. So, for our purposes, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, is central to this discussion for us. Because it says that we are created in God's image. Drastically different from what the naturalists or the atheists say, who say we are evolved. Now, this is so important for us because what comes with us being born in God's image is the ability to reason and to think. The ability to reason and to think. That's what is uh, built deeply into us. It's precisely because we were built in God's image that we even do science in the first place. C.S. Lewis said this, men became scientific because they expected laws in nature, such as the law of gravity. They expected laws in nature. And they expected laws in nature because they believed in a law giver. You can't just have the law without who wrote the law. And so C.S. Lewis recognized this and said, this is exactly why men became scientific. There's a misconception out there that science and Christianity are fundamentally opposed to each other, that we cannot have both. 
that if you believe in one, then you reject the other automatically. This is an outright lie. In fact, there's theories in science that are fundamentally opposed to each other. Is anybody here, like, anybody a science nerd here? A couple people, maybe. All right, one back there, two, three. Okay. This is going to, this is just for three of you. Because no, nobody else will care. You cannot have the laws of quantum mechanics, or the theory of quantum mechanics, and E equals MC squared, the theory of relativity. One must be true, one must be false. Yet, most scientific community agrees with one or the other. So, there are even parts in science that are fundamentally opposed to each other. So for the three of you, you just nerded out, welcome. Um, that was for you. So, but we are told that if you're, if you're a Christian, then you're not really a scientist. It's, you know, and, and next week I'm going to show a little funny video that college, uh, or funny or die, put together on creationism. And I just thought it'd be funny to show that before we have our conversation next week. But, um, but we're seen as people who are really ambivalent towards science. But this is an outright lie. The founders of modern science, Isaac Newton, Galileo, they were believers in God. And they set out to, to look for God's fingerprints on the universe. That's what drove them. That's what drove them. They were looking for God's fingerprints. And if you read their writing, it's, it's absolutely incredible how much they believe in God. And there's, there's people like, like Richard Dawkins, who's a, who's a very uh, big atheist and, and uh, biologist, who uh, says that we are delusional for even being here this morning. That you're a delusional person for showing up at church today. That's what he would say. But we have to understand that at the very beginning of science, there was no conflict whatsoever between religion and science. It was because we believed in God that we even did science in the first place. It's because we think that we even went there. It's because we were made in the image of God. This is one of the new lies that has popped up in, in our world, that science is the only way to truth. That's one of the new lies that's popped up in our world. And we hear that over and over and over again. That's reinforced every time you're in the news and, and, and you see new studies say, new studies say, new studies say. We automatically believe it because it has authority. It just has this authority over us. But science is not the only way to truth, although it does confirm it. I love this. Bertrand Russell, who is probably the most brilliant logician, uh, mathematician, and philosopher in the, eight, or the 19th and 20th century, the most brilliant man alive at this time, wrote this statement. And it, it'll be on your, uh, on your notes, too. Whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific means. What science cannot discover, mankind cannot, cannot know. And that's sort of become the mantra of, of the new atheist movement, is that, hey, if science can't prove it, then we can't know it. Well, this is very interesting. Bertrand Russell put together a very pithy, nice statement. But let's break this down a little bit. What science cannot tell us, we cannot know. Is this a statement of science? It, no. Can science prove his statement? No. It's not a statement of science. It's a statement of philosophy. Therefore, if it's true, it's false. He's wrong. It's logically incoherent. You cannot um, say something like that because you can't prove the very statement. It applies to everything else except for his statement. And this is one of the errors that we see all over the place in logic. And these are the errors that are filtering into our school system. They're filtering into our lives, and they're filtering in everywhere. How does, 
because of the authority of the man, Bertrand Russell, again, will be just forever more brilliant than I will ever be. I will always think of him as an intellectual hero. However, a fatal error in logic here. Whatever knowledge is attainable must be attained by scientific means. What science can't discover, we can't know. It's not a statement of silence. Science. So if it's true, it's false. Albert Einstein even told us that there are limits to science. He said, you can speak of the ethical foundations of science, but you cannot speak of the scientific foundations of ethics. The new atheist movement that's coming up, and it's actually huge, it's bigger than you probably imagine. The new atheist movement that is, that is going through our, um, our society right now, it really does believe that there's no other truth but than scientific truth. In 1960, there was a Nobel Prize winner named Sir Peter Medawar, and this is in your notes as well. And he, he talked about the limits to science, and he simply said, the existence of the limits to science is, is made clear by the inability to answer childlike elementary questions that have to do with the first and last things. Questions such as, how did everything begin? What are we here for? What is the point of living? These questions are not answered in this naturalistic worldview that we're talking about. So again, Two different ways to explain the world. The narrative today that the new atheists, by the new atheists is that science is the only way to truth and that the church is unscientific. However, it's because of our knowledge of Jesus that we have even ventured into these realms of science. Science is amazingly cool. It reveals the glory and majesty of a creative God. But yet it is not the only way to truth. It simply confirms. So, now we're going to get into our topic today, and the question is, has science buried God? Has science buried God? I, I put that question on my Facebook, and, and the person who's going to be here next week emailed me back and said, yes, science has buried God. Ha, 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 ha. Just as a joke, right? And he's a great guy. He's a, he's a friend of mine, and we ought to be praying for him. He also has cancer. Uh, we ought to be praying for him as well. Uh, he'll be here next week. But then I replied back to him, oh, Kenny, your, your logic has failed you. Because if science has buried God, then it would necessarily follow that every single scientist would be an atheist. But that's not true, is it? And he, and he just sort of laughed back. But that's the logic of it. That if science had buried God, then all scientists would be atheists. But there are many scientists, in fact, Nobel Prize winning scientists that are Christians and that, whom I've taken arguments from today. And by the way, um, I could list an extensive list of resources if any of you are interested in, in getting into this topic further. But I want to just simply talk about some of this worldview. So evolution is one of the ways that, that these naturalists now explain our world coming up. So there's two parts to atheism, and this, or I'm sorry, to evolution. And this is important because this is being taught in school. And there's a movement to teach intelligent design, which I think is really important and logical, but it's not happening. So here's... Here's the, the two parts. One, adaptation throughout the species. In other words, you change as you go to different places in the world. That's observable. Nobody, not even Christians, no scientists disagree with that. In fact, before Charles Darwin, there were people making that claim. So Charles Darwin has just kind of compiled it all. So nobody disputes that. But part two is the descent of man versus Jeremiah 1. So Charles Darwin, Richard Dawkins, claimed that humanity is a result of an unguided process. 
that is completely without purpose and completely random. It simply just happened. By the way, that's not a very good scientific answer, right? You ask the scientist, hey, how did this all come to be? Well, you see, it just happened. They wouldn't accept that from us, would they? It just happened. Life formed at heat vents at the bottom of the ocean, and over millions of years, life evolved from simple cells to these very complex organisms. Darwin even says your whole body, your whole life, is essentially purposeless. I mean, it's kind of a bleak way to look at the world. You are entirely purposeless. Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, the renowned astrophysicist, said, we do not have intelligent design, we have stupid design. No engineer would design you the way you are. By the way, that's not a scientific claim, that's just sort of being arrogant and ambivalent. So I love that scientists do not use scientific claims to back up their own work. But then Charles Darwin says this in his autobiography, and this is the point we should really be paying attention to. He says, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the convictions of man's mind, which have been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust the convictions of a monkey's mind if there was any convictions at all? So this is what Charles Darwin says. He goes, hey, listen, if we're all derived from monkeys, then why should we even trust what's in our brains? And as Christians, we say, no, we're made in the image of God, and God embedded his intelligence within us. And we're going to talk a little bit about that because science has actually proven that. Um, God has embedded his, his intelligence within us. And, and so therefore, we have the ability to reason. We have the ability to think. And whereas Darwin says, hey, this is a great theory and all, but why should I even trust my own theory because I came from an ape? Well, we do not believe that you came from Another really smart scientist says this, if the thoughts of my mind are just motions of atoms in my brain, a mechanism that has arisen mindlessly, unguided processes, why should I believe anything my mind tells me at all? So you see, the complaint about the fact that we are evolved beings comes from the lower mammals, and if this is true, then we would not be able to know it. Because our cognitive facilities, our brain, our ability to reason, would have come from animals. Um, Renowned philosopher, American philosopher, Alvin Plantinga says this, if Dawkins is right and we are the product of a mindless, unguided natural process, then he has given us strong reason to doubt the reliability of human cognitive facilities. Therefore, inevitably, um, to doubt the validity of any belief that can produce, um, including Dawkins' own science and his atheism. His biology and his belief in naturalism would therefore to be at war with each other in conflict that has nothing to do with God. So the Christian argument here is we would not be able to think, we would not even be able to put together a rational thought, any logic at all, if we were derived from monkeys. But since we were derived from intelligence, we actually can put together some thoughts. So the Bible says this, Hebrews 11, um, 3 says this, By faith we understood that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. This is an incredible statement, and it could be a statement of science today. It only took, you know, 1,800 years before scientists really went, wow, that's actually kind of true. They would deny the whole God speaking thing, but that the universe was formed at God's command. 
and was not made out of what was visible, not made out of matter. It's an incredible statement. Jeremiah 1.5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you, uh, you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And this is God speaking to, to Jeremiah. But the Bible's claim is that you are full of purpose. That God created you, gave you gifts, destined you to do amazing things, and wants you to serve him in incredible ways. Whereas the atheistic evolutionist argument is you are essentially purposeless, your body has arisen out of mud, and uh, there's really you've got leftover body parts from when you were... Um, uh, homo erectus, uh, or, you know, a, a monkey. You have leftover body parts, like your tonsils and your appendix and stuff like that. Although, scientists actually have found purpose for your appendix. Anyways, we'll get into that. We won't actually get into that at all. Um, I, I heard a scientist once say, a Christian person who's a scientist said this. He said, I, I'm afraid that we're all climbing this hill. All the scientific community is climbing this hill. And when we get to the top, we're going to find out that, that theologians have been there for, for years. I just love that statement. Because when science is your only rubric of truth, you're drastically limited to only that it, what it can produce. So I want to talk about another argument for God here. And like I said, I know this is complex stuff. It took me a long time. I've been reading this stuff for almost a year now. And it took me a long time to get it. So if, if you're like, I don't know if I'm necessarily following here, I understand there's a lot uh, going on. Semiotics. I know that sounds like a big word, but it's not. It simply means symbols. It means symbols. Um, our own ability to reason and use our brain is the best evidence that we have for an intelligent God. It's an argument called semiotics. It's a Greek word for a sign. And... and Here's where I really feel that we could prove kind of evolution false without a shadow of a doubt. Um, but you'll see the next uh, week that people are still convinced. So we'll talk about this for a second. Let me give you this analogy. If you were stranded on a desert island for 30 years, and you're sitting under a palm tree, it's just you, the island is probably the size of this stage, and one morning you wake up, and you look on the beach, and you see the first four letters of your name there. You would say, who's here that knows me? Somebody is here. Somebody knows me. Who is here? And you would look around for everybody because those words denote intelligence, don't they? You would say, wow, what is going on here? This is absolutely incredible. What is the uh, chances? And actually, scientists have calculated the chances of this happening randomly in nature. And there's something like 10 to the 1,064th power or something, which is actually longer than the 14 billion years of the Big Bang. So anyways... What is the chances of this happening? Incredibly slim. Like, no chances at all that this would happen. But those letters denote meaning. Therefore, meaning means intelligence. The evolutionist says, well, that's merely chance. In fact, when I talk with my friend, we'll talk about this a little bit um, next week, but he, he talks a little bit about how, well, if you give it enough time, like millions and millions of years, the a right amount of wind and the right amount of waves could possibly make letters in the sand. You know, he's trying to get this argument. But here's my point. The human genome was recently mapped. Um, there are 3.7 billion letters of code inside your body. You are a container of computer code, basically, but it's chemical code. 
your container of it. You're full of it. How many times has somebody told you that, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I went to church today on Mother's Day, and the pastor told me I was full of it. Um, chemical code. You're full of chemical code. It's like a giant computer program, but it's much more sophisticated than you would ever imagine. Because it's this four-letter strand, and, and there's DNA, and it's twisted. And not only is this code linear, but it also folds on top of each other. And as it folds, those letters meet up exactly. Without those letters meeting up, we would not exist. And the people who did the Human Genome Project, one of them, a Christian, has looked at this and went, wow, those letters denote intelligence. He's a Nobel Prize winning person, by the way. He said those letters denote intelligence. What is the chance that even four letters of your name would show up on this random beach where you are? Astronomically impossible. But what are the chances that 3.7 billion letters actually line up inside your entire body? That can only be the result of intelligence. And so this is the argument for intelligence there. Text and symbols are evidence of mind. You remember when all those people uh, we, in the 90s, everybody went crazy over crop circles? Remember this? Everybody's watching on TV, and they're like, oh, the new crop circle popped up today in Ireland or whatever. And everybody's, what did everybody jump to? Aliens, right? Yeah, it must have been aliens, an outside source of intelligence. We didn't say the wind did it, which is an argument I like to use when I was a kid when my room was messy. I don't know, the wind did it. Um, we didn't have an air conditioner, and we had to open the windows. So it was, I thought it was plausible, but I was three. Um, we said aliens, it must have been aliens, but really it was a couple farmers that were just big pranksters and had a lot of fun. But we looked at that and said, there's intelligence in those symbols, right? And that's the idea. Your body is a container of intelligence. You produce that every single day. You sit down and write that down. It, it, it must come from an outside source. Nothing goes so simple as a one or two cell mechanism to a 3.7 billion line of code person. That is not reproducible in science. So this is a very interesting thing. We have rational minds because the God of all creation is rational. And in all of his intelligence, he formed you in his image. All 3.7 letters of your code. So this brings up our next point. It's a myth that scientists will tell you all the time. They'll say, you could have a design, but you don't need a designer. Actually, and what's amazing to me is all the atheist side of this, extremely brilliant people, like smarter than, than, than you can ever think of. One of them is the smartest person alive right now. They, they think it's Stephen Hawking. They think he is the smartest guy alive right now. And Stephen Hawking said this, because there's a law such as gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. And you guys can go home and say, well, we have the most brilliant pastor in the world because he just refuted Stephen Hawking. Is gravity something or nothing? Something. That's a really simple, that's a really simple thought, right? Well, gravity is not nothing. And Stephen Hawking says, because there's such a law of gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. But he presupposes gravity. Gravity's already there. Now, like I said, Hawking is the smartest man alive. Um, written some incredibly amazing work. Stuff I can't even understand yet. The man has incredible...
incredible contributions to his field. But his logic badly fails him right here. Simple elementary logic tells us that gravity is something. It is not nothing. But in other words, here's what they will tell you. You have to choose between God and gravity. You have to choose between the two. And that doesn't make sense. Christians say, no, you can have both. The God that created gravity. That's what we believe, that God actually created this stuff. So all the big speakers in, this, in the scientific world are like, no, you can't explain it. It's either gravity or nothing. And I just love that. Because to refute the most the smartest guy in the world, all you have to do is say gravity's not nothing, gravity's something. That's it. All right, last argument, and the God of the gaps, and this is the one that you hear most frequently. Most frequently. We hear this from the natural the naturalist scientific community all the time. Richard Dawkins, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who has passed away from cancer. Um, it, Many, many atheists have made this claim. They've said that over the years, if we couldn't explain something, we just said God did it. Right? So let me give you an example. Raining and there's thunder and lightning. Well, we didn't have the scientific mechanisms necessary to test the atmosphere, so we just said God did it. And and then there was a giant flood, and we went, oh, God hated those people. God did it. And, And then, you know, we reached the limits of our understanding And we go, oh, wow, God must have done it because we reached the limits of our understanding. But their argument is the more and more and more and more we know, the smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller God becomes. Well, we serve the God of the whole show. We don't serve, they've defined God for us. And when we speak with atheists, that's one of the things we have to be very careful of. They like to define God for us, but we, well, we really there's a debate raging about whether or not you could actually define God. We need to let God define God, the God of the Bible, not allow an atheist to define God for you because that defines God in a very specific way that as knowledge increases, God decreases. But we don't believe that at all. Um, let's see. So now if you believe in a God like that, then you have to choose between God and science. If you believe in a God that... As something's explained, God is, is decreased, then you would have to choose between God and science. But when Isaac Newton discovered the law of gravity, he didn't say, wonderful, I found a mathematical description of how it works. I don't need God. He didn't do that. He wrote, the, he, he wrote this book, which is one of the most cherished books in all science. He wrote the Principia Mathematica, expressing the hope that people would believe in God now that he has found the law of gravity. But that's not taught in our universities anymore. The more he understood science, the more he understands the genius of the God who did it that way. See, the problem with this argument is that God is defined in a limiting way. So most atheists say, if science increases, then God decreases. But let's look at Psalm 19. Psalm 19, you know, it's amazing that it took about 3,500 years of scientific work to catch up with Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. And night after night, They reveal knowledge. Now, there are some very early scientists who would look at the stars and calculate and do some mathematics, and they figured out mathematics is kind of the the language that that the heavens uses to talk. And and, and then over the period of time, there's people like Galileo and Newton and, and all kinds of other people who looked up and they derived equations 
mathematic equations from this and went, wow, the stars pour forth knowledge into our lives. In fact, we could calculate very specific things because of the stars. And it was about 3,500 years ago that Psalm 19 got that wrong. Interesting. What does an atheist say about that? Random chance. 50-50, right? You got 50-50 chance of getting that right anyway. So it's taken science about 3,000 years to catch up with this psalm. For ages, men and women have looked at the sky, have looked at the sky, but science has helped them to derive the knowledge from the stars. And in fact, there's so many equations and mathematical knowledge from the stars. It's absolutely incredible. Books upon books. But so much of that comes from the Bible, too. God made you from the dust of the earth. Scientists have now confirmed that, that yeah, you are actually stardust. Yeah, you look at your body, and you have the same elements of you as a supernova that's exploded, and the dust has come to our earth or created our earth in, in a certain way, and that you were derived from dust, stardust. And that's what the God of the Bible said that he formed you out of the dust of the ground. Not out of trees, out of the dust of the ground. And science over and over confirms this. Ladies and gentlemen, God is not a God of the gaps. As as scientific knowledge increases, God doesn't decrease. God is a God of the whole show. It's important to note that um, not all atheists are atheists for scientific reasons. We're going to put some of those up on the screens. They, they have other things, like the problem of evil. We might talk about that next week. Um, they have things like, so much harm has been done in the name of religion that I just don't go to church. There's that, too. Um, and we've got to talk about those issues as well. And some people will say, it seems arrogant to say that your way is the only way. And we need to talk about that as well. And then there's this, my mother died when I was young, and it just doesn't seem fair that God would do that. We've got to deal with that as well. And there's some people who just simply don't care. And we've got to deal with them as well. But why is this so important? I mean, I've spent so much time talking about the atheistic argument and, and weaving a little bit of Bible into it, but why is this so important for our everyday lives? One, responsibility. If you have explained away the world using chance and necessity and evolution, then you are ultimately not responsible to anybody else other than yourself. But if there is truly an intelligent designer, God, that sent his son to earth to, to, to die for our sins, then, then we have a responsibility there, and we're responsible to God. And so there's this real sense that I would say that, that folks who are atheists don't want to be held responsible. But as Christians, we understand that whether or not people want to be held responsible, we still have a responsibility. I would really also hope today that you see that really, really well-meaning, smart people, brilliant people, people who've won Nobel Prizes can have bad logic. So don't feel so bad. I hope you see that science and God are not incompatible. Also, I hope you understand our kids are being taught evolution as a theory, um, but really they're being taught as a fact. And so this idea of not being held responsible for it will come up. I hope that there's some of you who will um, just sit back there and go, wow, God is bigger than I can ever imagine. Maybe there's some of you who
who are called to refute some of this stuff and get into some of this stuff. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We demolish arguments with every pretension that sets ourselves up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And maybe you simply need to do that to demolish these bad arguments. But here's the big thing today. All this science and philosophy talk might be a little over our heads this morning, but there are two things that I want you to get. One, atheists are smart. If you talk to them, we, we need to know some of this stuff. And I've got, given you a pretty good cheat sheet about what all this stuff says. So we do need to do a little bit of work to be prepared to engage our world. And two, more important than knowing all of the lingo, knowing all of this stuff, is simply being able to share your experience with Jesus. That's it. Paul, one of the smartest guys in the Bible, was trained classically, wrote all of these letters to all these churches. When his faith was questioned in the middle of, of, of Greece, what did he say to him? All I know is that I was somebody who persecuted the church and that God showed up in a massive way. And that I had to change because of God in my life. Simply that. You know, you might, you might be one like me who loves getting into this stuff and, and, and could just sit all day long and just read all this stuff because it's amazing. But maybe you simply just need to learn how to share your story a little bit better. First Peter 3.15 says, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have within you. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that's within you. But do this with gentleness and respect. As Christians, like I said, one of the things that we need to understand is that we are responsible to God in our lives. And God wants to use some of us here to reach our friends and family and and other people who might be atheists, who might live in this line of thinking. And we have some ways to do that. There's definitely, we're not out of bounds here. There's a lot of ways to do that. So I simply want to pray for us today because like we had everybody stand up last week that, that knew a gay person or was friends with somebody that was gay. Um, simply today, we have a lot of friends that are atheists. Think about just Facebook count or people who simply just don't care. How do we address them in this world today? Let's pray about that. Father, we just thank you for um, the fact that you want to transform each one of us to be your character, to, to, to live in your character. God, I know that today this this sermon topic is complex. Lord, there is so much here, so much to understand. But God, as we engage in these conversations, I pray that you would bring some of this stuff to mind. I pray that you would help us to recall what it is you did in the very beginning that, that you created us within your own image. So God, because you created us in your image, as we go out to the world and as we interact with people, Lord, would you help us look like your image a little bit so that people might see a compassionate, gracious God who forgives all their sins. So God, would you lead us now in that journey? In the name of Jesus.